So let's get started. Amen. Um, if you have your Bible open to Matthew 11, we're going to stay. I know I usually jump to a bunch of different scriptures because we've been doing orphan mentality, but today we're going to stay in Matthew 11. When I was in Haiti, I was in Port-au-Prince for a time, and I had someone message me from the States, a friend, and she said, Wesley, I was praying for you this morning, and the Lord wants to speak to you through Matthew 11. And now during this particular time in Haiti, I was in a 40-day fast asking God what my next steps were going to be. I had just been director of that orphanage, and God had done wonderful things there, and I wanted to go back there. But I didn't have a word from him to continue there yet. And with big decisions in my life, I always present them to the Lord and say, what do you want me to do? Um, because when you commit to something, the enemy always tries to come against you. And so when you have a word from God, that's what keeps you unshakable, right? You can always go back to what he said and then stay steady. So I was praying about that. My friend said, Matthew 11. So right in that moment, I started reading and I thought, this is one of the chapters it has, a f it has a part in here that I have never understood. I've never connected. So I started to pray and ask God to, to reveal what this meant. So we're starting in, in Matthew 11, verse 1. It says, When Jesus had finished giving instructions to his 12 disciples, he departed from there to preach in their cities. Now when John, which is John the Baptist, when John, being imprisoned, heard of the works of Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, are you the expected one or should we look for someone else? So John is in prison, John the Baptist. You think about who John is. He's the one who was anointed since birth to prepare the way for Jesus to come. He had lived in the wilderness, grew up um, eating locusts and honey, like his whole life was to prepare the way for Jesus to come. And he's now imprisoned for the work that he was doing. Right? He had a word from God since birth, so he stuck with it, even to the point of imprisonment. And he ended up being beheaded because of what he stood for, calling people to repentance. And yet he's in prison, and he sends his disciples to go ask Jesus, are you the one that we've been expecting, or should we look for someone else? And Jesus answered the disciples of John and said, Go and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to, the preached to them. And blessed, blessed is he who does not take offense at me. And that's the part that I always got to and was like, How the heck does that connect with anything else that was just said? Jesus is saying, go back to John. Tell him all that's happening. And tell him, blessed is he who does not take offense in me. And I'm like, okay, I don't get it. What are you trying to say here, Lord? John had baptized Jesus. Do you remember when Jesus goes to get baptized? He goes to John, and John recognizes who Jesus is and says, I can't baptize you. You need to baptize me. And Jesus says, permit it for now. John baptizes Jesus, and what happens? Jesus comes out of the water. The heavens open up. The Father from heaven, booming voice, says, This is my Son in whom I am well pleased. And then a dove 
descends on him, which was the Holy Spirit. Now, John saw all that happen. Yet now he's in prison and he's doubting. He's forgotten. Maybe, I was thinking it was very appropriate what Tommy preached about last week. When we don't remember what the Lord has done, it produces doubt and unbelief. Right? When we don't remember what he's done, we are in unbelief. We, we doubt is produced. So John is experiencing that. This man who was marked since birth to prepare the way for Jesus is in prison, about to die, and he's wondering, oh my gosh, did I do this all for nothing? Has, even, has he even come yet? Is this man the one? And Jesus doesn't rebuke John in that moment for his doubt. That's the kindness of Jesus, right? He doesn't say, John, don't you remember? Like, the Father spoke to me. You heard him say, thundering from heaven, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. Was that not evident enough? He doesn't say that. He says, go reassure John, right? Jesus understands our frailty. He understands that we're weak. He understands our humanity. And he says, go reassure John. I understand he's my friend. Actually, he was Jesus's cousin, second cousin. Go reassure him. All these things are happening. And blessed is him who does not take offense in me. Now, we can't understand that part until we move on. So as the disciples are going away, Jesus begins to speak to the crowds about John. He says, what did you go out in the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? But what did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Those who wear soft clothing are in king's palaces. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and one who is more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written. Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. Truly, I say to you, among those born of women, there are not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. And then he goes on to say, if you're willing to accept it, John himself is Elijah who was to come. Now, there was a word saying that before Jesus came, Elijah was going to come back. Now, Elijah in the Old Testament was this bomb prophet who went and did crazy things. And he was known for the amazing signs and wonders. And he was, God just took him up. He never died. He just was taken up with the Lord. And it was prophesied that Elijah would come again before Jesus. And Jesus now says about John, John is Elijah that was supposed to come. So he just fulfilled this prophecy saying, don't you see? But what was he saying here? John was not as you expected him to be. What did you go out to see? What were you expecting? You were expecting to see this, 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 and this, but that's not how he came. And you were offended. So now that part makes sense. Jesus is saying, I did all these things. Do not be blessed is he who's not offended in me, who doesn't take offense in me. Now, John and all the Pharisees who, whenever we hear the word Pharisee, we immediately think bad people, <laughs> bad people in the Bible who rejected Jesus. Really, they were the students of the law. They knew the prophets 
and the prophecies better than most. That's what Pharisee meant. It meant that they were the most studied. The problem was they were hypocrites. So they knew everything and then didn't act accordingly. That was the problem. It wasn't a problem that they were Pharisees. But the reason why the Pharisees, what happened with the Pharisees is that they were offended by Jesus. They read all the prophecies. They knew it. John knew it. He knew his role. He knew what the word said, that Je how Jesus was going to come. He knew all the prophecies. But it didn't, even though Jesus fulfilled all the prophecies, it didn't look like what they expected. They thought Jesus was going to come and become king over Israel right then. They thought he was going to be a political person in power because of the prophecies. That's how they interpreted the prophecies. And when he came as a baby in a manger, they were offended by him. When he came and humbled himself to the point of death on a cross, they were offended by him and said, we don't want this man to be our God. This is not our Savior. He's going to come in power. He's going to come in authority, which is what Scripture had said, but they didn't understand what the king, how the kingdom of God functions. They didn't understand that to be in the highest place, you go to the lowest place. That humility is the place of authority in the kingdom of God. They didn't understand it, and because of that, they were offended by who he was. Now, Jesus says John's the same way. People were offended by John because they expected him to come a different way. Then he goes on in verse 16, Jesus, he says, what shall I compare this generation? It is like children in the marketplace who call out to other children. They say, we played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. He's saying we, al we always do something and we want the outcome to look like we, what we want. We sang a dirge. But Jesus, you didn't do what we wanted, so we're offended. We, were, we played the flute. You did not dance. You're not doing what we want you to do. You're not doing what we expect you to do. You're doing the opposite. Verse 18, for John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. So they said, John, you're not doing what we want you to do. You must be demon-possessed. John the Baptist, the one preparing the way for Jesus. And then the Son of Man came eating and drinking. And they say, behold, he's a gluttonous man and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and si sinners. Yet wisdom is vindicated by what she does, by her deeds and by her children, which means wisdom is vindicated by the fruit. What was the fruit of Jesus? He said in the beginning, lame can walk, blind can see, the dead are raised up, the poor are being ministered to. That's the fruit of his wisdom. He was pointing John to his deeds. I am vindicated by what is done here, by my deeds. It's showing who I am. When John was, when Jesus and John, you remember Mary goes to visit her cousin Elizabeth, 
and she's pregnant with Jesus, and Elizabeth is pregnant with John. And as Mary is approaching, Elizabeth proclaims, Oh, blessed are you, O highly favored woman of God. My, the baby in my stomach leapt as you were approaching. This is in Luke. I'm going to read it real quick. In Luke, where did it go? 137, 39. So she goes, she, she Mary's going to the house of Elizabeth. She enters the house of Zacharias and greets Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leapt in her womb. That's John the Baptist. John leaps in the womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. She cried out and said, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. How has it happened to me that the mother of my Lord would come to me? Verse 45, Blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what had been spoken to her by the Lord. Now we see in Matthew 11, this whole explanation of Jesus. He's saying, John has doubt. I understand. Reassure him, this is what I've done. This is who I am. Don't be offended. Let me explain to you what's happened. And he goes on to explain. John came like this, and you expected something else, but he's Elijah. He's the one you've been waiting for. So he uncovers that. And then he says, I came. You didn't, I didn't come as you expected, and you've been offended in, at me. But I'm the son of the living God. I am sent from God for you. So this has struck me personally in many ways. Oh, you, before I go there, Matthew 11, 20 through 24, the next part, Jesus ends by rebuking cities for their unbelief. So he doesn't re rebuke John because he understands John's situation. But he goes on and he says, Woe to you, O city. He says he denounces the cities in which most of his miracles were done because they did not repent. And he goes, woe to you, woe to you, for if the miracles had occurred in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago. So Jesus is saying, wow, here I am, right before you, coming to save you, doing signs and wonders and miracles to show you who I am, to fulfill prophecy, to fulfill what was said about me, and you've rejected me, you've not repented Woe to you in that day. This struck me in that moment as I was sitting there in Haiti reading this, and I thought to myself, oh, my goodness, woe is me as I've been offended at the way that God has moved in my life. The Lord had spoken to me just a few days earlier that he wanted me to come back to New York City and get some healing because I had been through some very difficult situations in Haiti that affected my emotions and affected me mentally. And the Lord had told me 
during my fast, go back to New York. You need to receive healing. And I said, no, I, that can't be what you want me to do because I have this word from you and this word from you and this word from you that says I'm supposed to do X, Y, and Z. But my understanding of what God was saying was out of timing, and I was now offended at what he was telling me to do because I didn't understand. I didn't see his heart behind it, and because I didn't see who he was, and I had misinterpreted the word of the Lord or the words of God toward me, I became offended at what he was now telling me to do. You need to go back. And I was wrecked in this that I, s I don't want to misunderstand who you are. I don't want to be offended at your ways. And that's what Jesus is saying in this passage. Do not be offended at the way that I do things. Do not be offended by my word. My word will cut you. My word will pierce right in. But do not be offended because I am good and my ways will be accomplished in you, and it's for your good. When we receive words from the Lord, just like the Pharisees with those prophecies, they created an expectation of what it should look like in their mind and in their heart. And how many times have we done that? Well, I received a promise from God, and immediately I, it plays out before my mind how I want it to happen. So the promise for me is you're going to live in Haiti for a season. You're going to live in Cite Soleil, plant churches. People are going to get saved. I have that promise from God. Cite Soleil is one of the most dangerous slums in the world. And I, the Lord has spoken to me that I will live there. Now we will live there. What I thought was it was going to happen in 2014-15. Because I had this whole picture. Did he tell me that? No. He said, you're going to live in Cité Soleil. Did he tell me a time? Nope. But why? My humanity says, he's told me this. So pretty much, I'm here in Haiti. I'm done at the orphanage. Must mean next step Cité Soleil while I'm here, you know, used to the culture, have the language, have the open door. Must be. So I, I create this expectation in my heart. And then when I go to seek the Lord about it, certain that he's going to tell me, go to Cité Soleil. And he says, go back to New York City. And I go, what? I'm offended. That can't be God. Why do you always do this to me? Then I'm hurt by the Lord. God, you always give me a promise and rip it away. And I, you know, go to all those extremes. You never fulfill your promises and blah, 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 blah. That's all out of hurt because I've created an expectation of how something has to play out when he never had said that in the first place. Now, this is so common. It goes right back to Abraham. When I was thinking about this over the years and trying to mature in my understanding and receiving of the word of God or the promises of God in my life, because we each have to mature, God will give us many promises. That's who he is. He never breaks his promises. He gives them to us. But as we mature, we don't put an expectation on how it's supposed to look or when it has to take place. We allow him to do it. We allow him to mark it and the timing and allow it to come to pass. It started with Abraham. 
Abraham received a major promise in Genesis 15. What was the promise that God gave to him? Multiply the offspring. Many nations would come from him. So in, in 15, it says, The Lord came to Abraham in a vision. Do not fear. I will, I'm a shield to you. Your reward will be very great. Abraham said, God, what will you give me? I'm childless. The heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. Oh, how about that? Damascus. And Abraham said, since you have no offspring to me, one born in my house is my heir. The word of the Lord came to him saying, this man will not be your heir, but one who will come forth from your own body. He shall be your heir. And he took him outside, showed him the stars, and said, your descendants are going to be more than the stars of the sky. Next chapter, what happens? Sarai takes her maiden and says, sleep with my husband and produce offspring. We have a word from God. We're going to have a child. I can't bear children. So he must have wanted us to do something our way. I mean, we look at that and we're like, stupid, you should have waited. Because we know the whole story, but guaranteed each one of us would have done the same exact thing. Well, we've been waiting a good couple of months now. Not pregnant yet. Better take things into our hands. So Sarai says to Abraham, see, the Lord has restrained me. She blames the Lord. The Lord has restrained me, so sleep with my handmaiden so that we can have children. Abraham does it. That creates a massive mess. As you know, Ishmael is born. That's basically the, the <laughs> shoot off of Muslims and Christians. Ishmael, Isaac, if you look back that far. So you can see big issues came from that that lasted for a long time up to present day because of disobedience, trying to control and push our way. We had a word from the Lord. He didn't tell us how it was going to happen, so he obviously wants us to make it happen. Nope. Next chapter, God comes back and says, the Lord, when Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am God Almighty. I will establish my covenant between me and you, and I will multiply you. Abraham falls on his face. God says to him, as for me, my covenant is with you. You will be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be Abraham, Abram, but Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful. If you go to verse 16, God's continuing in his promise. He says, as for Sarai, your wife, she'll be called Sarah. I will bless her. Indeed, I will give you a son by her. So he's like, okay, you tried with some other woman. I'm going to be a little more clear. <laughs> I will give you a son by her, by Sarah. This is one of my favorite verses in the entire Bible. It's Genesis 17, 17, and you're going to hear it now. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed favorite verse in the whole Bible. Can you imagine this 99-year-old man, the Lord's telling him, you're going to bear a son through Sarah, and he falls on his face and starts laughing hysterically. 
yeah, right, how is that supposed to happen? And he says, will a child be born to a man 100 years old? And will Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? Again, doubt. How the heck is this going to happen? What do you mean you're going to give us a son? And God reassures him, no, but Sarah, your wife, will bear a son. His name shall be Isaac, and I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant. Okay, so he's making things a little more clear as time's going by. This is how I'm going to do it. Genesis 18. The Lord appears again. Like he's going to reassure you of his promises over and over and over again because he's a promise keeper. He's not about to break his promises, but he doesn't want us to try to do it on our own. So chapter 18, the Lord appears again in verse 10 through 14. God says to Abraham, I will surely return to you this time next year. And behold, Sarah, your wife, will have a son. And Sarah was listening to the tent door, which was behind him, Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in age. Sarah was past childbearing. She couldn't even physically bear children anymore. Sarah laughed, saying, After I've become old, shall I give birth? The Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh? Is anything too difficult for the Lord? Is anything too difficult for the Lord? Now, they were laughing like, this. how the heck is this going to happen? We're 100 years old. Great. We're going to get pregnant now. Couldn't he have done this earlier? Imagine being 99 and 100 years old and God saying, you're going to get pregnant. And then he keeps making it more and more clear. First, he's saying, I'm going to multiply you. So they think Ishmael. They try to do it on their own. Then he comes back and he says, no, I'm going to give you a son. His name will be Isaac. Then he comes back again and says, by this time next year, he gives a timing to it. Before, he didn't give any timing, yet they created their own timing to his promise. If you wait on the Lord, he will reveal his timing. He will reveal his timing. He will reveal his timing. Do not be offended at the wait. Do not be offended in the waiting of his promises. He comes back and he says, one year from right now, Sarah will have a son. And you know, in chapter 21, there is the fulfillment, verses 1 through 8. One year from that time, Sarah had Isaac. Sarah said in verse 6, well, verse 5, now Abraham was 100 years old when his son Isaac was born to him. With one within one year, the Lord does not break his promises. He does not break his promises. Sarah says, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh with me. I like Abraham and Sarah because they laugh a lot, and I like to laugh, and it's clear through scripture. And she says, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse his children, yet I have borne him a son in his old age, and Isaac grew. So again, we cannot be offended. We can't put our expectations on the promise of God. Do you have a word from the Lord today? Do you have a word from God where he's spoken to you something very clearly, but he's not given you timing? He hasn't told you. You have to be uh, processed through what has God actually said to me? Because what he actually said to you 
may have sparked your imagination into creating this whole idea of what it has to look like. Sometimes his word, I would say the majority of the times, his promises don't look like what we're expecting. They look different. He does not want us to control. He doesn't want us to do things on our own. He wants us to wait on him and to not be offended in the waiting. And I believe that this is a word from God for us today. Do not be offended in the wait. When you have a promise from the Lord, hold on to the promise. Don't try to make it happen in your own strength. Don't try to, uh, or don't get discouraged if a lot of time has passed. That's very hard as well. When you're waiting for a promise, I've had to die many times to my desire to be back in Haiti. It's hard. It's not easy. When I have my my Haitian family there, my Haitian kids, and they're calling me, Mom, when are you coming back? When are you going to live here? When are you setting up your home in Cité Soleil? When are you guys coming? We want to move in. We want to do this. We want And they're all excited because they know the promise. And you know that it's exciting and it's breaking because you know that God has his timing and we cannot. It would be stupidity and cause maybe some major issues like Ishmael. When we try to take things into our own hands, we make a mess. It's best to wait on the Lord and not be offended when things don't look the way that you're thinking they're supposed to look. God is so much bigger than we are. I mean, if, you s- if we were to just start to think about the bigness, the greatness of God and who he actually is, He's massive. Think of the entire universe, galaxies and galaxies, and he created them. He upholds them with one word. He spoke them into existence and upholds them with one word. We are probably like little ants less than in comparison to the greatness of who God is. And yet we exalt ourselves so highly before the exalted one and say, God, I know you've probably forgotten about me. You're so busy up there, I might as well try to make this thing happen because you need my help. I, I, I know I'm just going to help you out a little bit. Like, you can't do this on your own. I've got it. Don't worry. Silliness, foolishness. He doesn't need our help. He needs our obedience. He desires our obedience. He wants that we wait on him and acknowledge his strength and his ability where he says, why are you laughing? Is anything too difficult for the Lord? Why are you doubting? Is anything too difficult for the Lord? When Jesus is about to hang on the cross and people are doubting and screaming and rebuking and yelling at him, he's saying, why are you doubting? Is anything too difficult for God? This My sin didn't put him there. The enemy didn't put him there. God the Father put Jesus on the cross. God the Father put Jesus on the cross because of his love for us. That was his will and his purpose. It didn't look like we wanted it to look. Everyone wanted a king in power. They wanted God to put Jesus in authority over Israel But God had a better way, and his ways are higher. His ways are higher, and we must trust him. 
So today, I just, I, I want us each to maybe think, we're going to take a minute and just think, what are the promise, what's a specific promise that the Lord has given to you? And we're going to give those things back over to the Lord. And maybe even repent of our offense against God or our anger that he hasn't done what we've wanted him to do. Maybe today's a moment where we allow the pain or the hurt or the disappointment that we felt to be released and poured out before God and say, God, I'm giving this over to you and I'm letting you do what you want to do in your timing, the way you want it to be done. And I'm not going to do it my own way anymore. I'm actually going to see if Nicole and Dylan could come up and then Tommy. And we're just going to be up here to pray with anybody who wants prayer. If you're feeling like, yeah, I have a promise and I'm offended by God, that's okay for you to acknowledge that. But today is a day to put down that offense.